Hello and welcome. I'm Jim Germain, and this is the 32nd Sunday in Ordinary Time. This week, our first reading comes from the Book of Kings. But a little backstory before we get started on context in Kings. So, after the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel split between Israel and Judah, there was a series of bad kings in Israel. One of these kings was named Ahab. Now, Ahab didn't start off as that terrible of a king, and he was kind of a smart guy. He knew that if your wife is happy, you'll be happy, and if your wife ain't happy, Ain't nobody happy. Well, he married a woman named Jezebel, who was the princess of Sidon, a neighboring kingdom. And her father had been a priest of the Phoenician gods. And so she was very adamant in her worship of the god Baal, the fertility god. And Ahab, in order to appease his wife, introduced Baal worship into the land of Israel. Now, obviously, this doesn't make God very happy. And so God sends a prophet Elijah to say, hey, what you doing? You should be worshiping God, not Baal. And Ahab and Jezebel are like, uh-huh, and just who are you? And Elijah's like, I'm the guy who knows what's about to happen. There's going to be a drought. You want to worship a fertility god? All right. But you're not going to be getting any food for the next year. Nope, not even dew will fall upon the ground. Well, this message kind of annoys Jezebel and Ahab, and so Elijah goes running off into the wilderness to try and save his life. And God comes to him and says, Elijah, hey, guess what? I've told a woman, a widow, in Zarephath to feed you if you just go there. And Elijah thinks to himself, hey, um, that's in Sidon. Jezebel is the princess of Sidon. If I'm fleeing to a neighboring country to be safe, Sidon might not be the best place. But I guess I trust you, Lord, so I'll go. And so he goes. And that's where we pick up now. There's a drought causing a severe famine throughout the entire land. In those days, Elijah the prophet went to Zarephath. As he arrived at the entrance of the city, a widow was gathering sticks there. He called out to her, Please bring me a small cup full of water to drink. She left to get it, and he called out after her, Please bring also a bit of bread. She answered, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked. There's only a handful of flour in my jar and a little oil in my jug. Just now I was collecting a couple sticks to go in and prepare something for myself and my son. When we have eaten it, we shall die. Elijah said to her, Do not be afraid. Go and do as you propose. But first, make me a little cake and bring it to me. Then you can prepare something for yourself and your son. For the Lord, the God of Israel, says, The jar of flour shall not go empty, nor the jug of oil run dry, until the day when the Lord sends rain upon the earth. She left and did Elijah had said. She was able to eat for a year, and he and her son as well. The jar of flour did not go empty, nor the jug of oil run dry, as the Lord had foretold through Elijah. So Baal is the god of fertility, supposedly. He's the one who makes it rain. He's the one who makes plants grow. If there's a famine, he's the one you pray to to end the famine. God causing a famine is showing that God is more powerful than Baal. But not only that, Baal provides food by making it rain and having plants grow. God here provides food miraculously. The jar of flour simply doesn't go empty. Once again, doubly showing God's superiority to Baal. Now you might wonder, so Elijah goes up to this widow who's starving to death and says, hey, give me some food. Doesn't that seem kind of, you know, Rude? Presumptuous, maybe? Well, no. Well, yes, and no. At the time, 
uh, in the Middle East and even today, hospitality is very important. If somebody comes to you and asks for food and they're a traveler, a legitimate person, then you do it. And then they're supposed to go and share your generosity with others. Say, hey, did you hear about this guy, how generous he is? He's a really great guy. And they share your honor. They give you honor. Part of why widows and orphans were looked down upon so because they didn't have any honor of themselves. So if you did something good for them, it didn't really matter. They weren't going to tell anyone, and if they did, no one would care. So you'd give good things to men, landowners, the wealthy, in order for them to share your honor with others. Now this woman is starving. She has only the slightest bit of flour left, just enough for a small piece of bread, and then after that she's fully expecting to starve to death. And Elijah comes and says, hey, you should give it to me. And she does. Right? Even in the Middle East where hospitality is like the top of what you're supposed to do, this is big. That's a very, very nice thing to do. At the same time, she's probably thinking, well, I mean, I'm going to starve to death anyway. Does it really matter which one of us eats the bread? And then, in thanks for her service, she eats for an entire year. So what we want to be aware of is this woman's willingness to serve. Her total gift of self for Elijah, who then provides for her a surrogate husband, a surrogate father to her son for a year, providing them with miraculous bread and even bringing her son back to life after he died in the subsequent readings. Elijah went to Sidon looking for sanctuary. He ends up providing bread to a widow and her son for an entire year, a son who later dies and is brought back to life. He's very much taking on a Josephinian role in this reading. All right, response to song. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul, O oh my soul. Oh, sorry, I'm not singing this. Praise the Lord, my soul. The Lord keeps faith forever, secures justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets captives free. Praise the Lord, my soul. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord raises up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the just. The Lord protects strangers. Praise the Lord, my soul. The fatherless and the widow he sustains. Right. See the first reading? That's what he did. But the way of the wicked he thwarts. The Lord shall reign forever. Your God, O Zion, through all generations. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord, O my soul. This last verse especially beautifully parallels the first reading of on what comes before and after, right? He thwarts the way of the wicked, right? Ahab is trying to bring about Baal worship in Israel, and God sends a famine to disqualify Baal as a legitimate God. The fatherless and the widow he sustains, but he sends Elijah to another land entirely. These aren't even Israelites, right? They're Sidonites. They're from Sidon, different kingdom. A widow and her fatherless son, and for a year he sustains them. Truly, praise the Lord my soul. So the question came up, why the fatherless? Why not say the orphan and the widow he sustains? Well, in the ancient Middle East, women didn't work. The man was the sole provider for his family. 
So if you didn't have a father, then you weren't much better off than an orphan. Whether or not you still have your mom, you're surviving on the handouts of others. You're surviving on the charity of strangers. You're surviving on the kindness of strangers. So by saying the fatherless and the widow he sustains one, it relates better to the gospel and the first reading. Of course, that's not the intention of the author, but it still does. But also, it's more of a catch-all. It includes everybody who's in need of God's protection, who's relying on kindness, on charity for their survival. Second reading is from the book of Hebrews. Christ did not enter into a sanctuary made by hands, a copy of the true one, but heaven itself. Right? Because the temple was a copy of the heavenly realities, an earthly representation of what's actually going on in heaven. Christ enters into the true sanctuary, that he might now appear before God on our behalf. Now that he might offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters each year into the sanctuary with blood that is not his own, if that were so, he would have to suffer repeatedly from the foundation of the world. Remember, when the Mass happens and the Eucharist is offered up, it's not a new offering. Christ offered his bloody sacrifice one time. Christ suffered on the cross one time. In the Mass, we have that same sacrifice offered up again on our behalf, but unbloodied this time. Same sacrifice. It's not a new sacrifice. He's not suffering all over again. It's a representation, like a video playing that time in Little League that you hit the ball into the goal. It's being represented. It's not happening over again, except that in the mystery of the Eucharist, in God's supernatural self-manifestation, it's not just a, like a play or a video. It's much more than that. We're actually seeing that same sacrifice. But now, once for all, he has appeared at the end of the age to take away sin by his sacrifice. Just as it is appointed that human beings die once, and after this the judgment, so also Christ, offered once to take away the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to take away sin, but to bring salvation to those who eagerly await him. Hmm. Just as appointed that human beings die once, and after this the judgment, so also Christ? Did Christ face judgment? Well, no. Christ, as a man, dies just like all men. But whereas we die and then face judgment, Christ dies and then faces our judgment, bringing salvation to us, taking away the condemnation that is rightly ours. He brings salvation to those who eagerly await him. Alleluia, alleluia. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, two weeks ago, we read the gospel where Christ gives the Beatitudes. And we talked about then how the poor in spirit are those who trust in God for everything. They have no status in society. They have nothing left of their own. And so they have to trust God for all that they have like a widow who's collecting sticks to cook one last meal before she dies of starvation. 
but who trusts in God so much that even this last meal she's willing to give away. The poor in spirit recognize that everything we have, we got from God. So it is only fair, it is only fitting that we offer it all back. On the cross, Christ gave everything for our sake. How can we not offer it all back? It's only fair. Our gospel reading this week comes from the book of Mark, chapter 12. In the course of his teaching, Jesus said to the crowds, Beware of the scribes who like to go around in long robes and accept greetings in the marketplace, seats of honor in the synagogue, and places of honor at banquets. In the Talmud, it says that when two people meet on the street, two Jews meet, the one who knows less about the law should offer greeting to the one who knows more. So scribes, being those who are very well versed in the law, were used to people coming up on the street and saying, oh, you're a scribe, it's so nice to meet you. Thank you for all the work you do, right? Thank you for teaching us about God. These flatteries, they're nice to get. In synagogues, there'd be seats in the front for those who are well-versed, these seats of honor, where everyone could see you and go, oh, that guy knows about the law. And in places of honor at banquets near the head of the table, near the host, these were things that scribes were entitled to, and they liked it. Who wouldn't like it? They devour the houses of widows, and as pretext recite lengthy prayers, they will receive a very severe condemnation. Remember, condemnation does not mean damnation. Right? Condemnation is simply punishment. Might mean hell in this case, but not necessarily. They devour the houses of widows. Strange. I mean, in the first reading, Elijah demands the very last piece of bread for himself. And here, Jesus is uh, condemning the scribes for devouring the house of widows. Going back to Jesus, he sat down opposite the treasury and observed how the crowd put money into the treasury. Many rich people put in large sums. A poor widow also came and put in two small, better translation, copper coins worth a few cents. Um, a copper coin was like a half penny, uh, and then the penny was worth one sixty-fourth of a day's wages. So if you think of a day's wage, it's like a hundred bucks. She'd be putting in like a buck fifty. Calling his disciples to himself, he said to them, Amen, I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the other contributors to the treasury, for they have all contributed from their surplus wealth, but she from her poverty has contributed all she had, her whole livelihood. A literal translation would be her whole life. This widow in the gospel is doing just as the widow in the first reading did. She's offering everything to God, everything she has. She may starve to death now because she gave away the only money she had to buy food. A woman who's truly very poor in spirit. And how does this reflect back with that first half of the gospel? They devour the houses of widows. Not that they would necessarily go into the house and expect to be fed, but that they teach these widows sacrificial offering. And so they come and they give money into the treasury, perhaps all they have, because they're good holy women. And the scribes, the Pharisees, this money was supposed to be spent, part of it, on taking care of the poor, feeding the widow and the orphan, but they didn't. Instead, they'd throw lavish dinners. They'd buy expensive food for themselves. They would devour these tithes that should have gone to feed the widow. So in the gospel, 
the widow gives money to the treasury, but she doesn't get the blessing back, not the material blessing that should have come to her. Elijah receives fruit from the widow. In exchange, he feeds her for a year. This widow is giving money to the temple all she has, but the scribes are just going to leave her to starve. I even heard uh, one speaker talk about how Jesus isn't praising her. He's lamenting this. And I think that's wrong. I think this is worthy of praise on her part. The condemnation is for the scribes who are failing in their half of the deal, right? We can think of this in a covenantal sense. In a covenant, as opposed to a contract, if one person fails in their end of the agreement, that doesn't mean the other person is released. Uh, when I get married in April, I'm going to be charged with being a good husband to my wife. And my wife's going to be charged with being a good wife to me. Now, let's say I fail miserably. I'm a terrible husband. Does that mean that my wife gets out of her half of the deal? No, she still has to be a good wife. She still has to love me, even if I fail to love her. And vice versa. I have to love my wife, even if she fails to love me. This is our relationship with God. Only with God, we know he's never going to fail us. We will always receive a greater reward. This woman was giving all she had and trusting in God. The scribes were supposed to take care of her material aspects, and they failed her. But we know that God didn't. We know that she did receive a great treasure in heaven. She gives all she has, for she loves the Lord with her whole heart, soul, and mind. She's not afraid to give it all. Now these readings have a beautiful parallel between our need to trust in God and God's trustworthiness. Between our need to give everything to God and the promise of God taking care of us. In the first reading in the Gospel, you have widows who offer everything to God, who hold nothing back. In the psalm, we hear of God's faithfulness. Praise the Lord, O my soul. The fatherless and the widow he sustains. He feeds the hungry. He sets the captive free. God is trustworthy. If we give everything to him, he will take care of us. In the second reading, we hear of Christ and how he makes a perpetual offering for the true heavenly temple, how he cares for our spiritual side. He provides us with salvation just so long as we're willing to accept his salvation, which isn't to say we don't have to do anything, just that our contribution is participatory, not additive. We accept him in faith. In that faith, we respond with our lives. He gives himself fully to us, and we give ourselves fully to him. It's an even trade. I think the main theme of these readings is very much this total self-gift that we offer to the Lord, this total trust that we are to have in the Lord, knowing that he will take care of us. Yes, we might die miserable deaths. We might have our heads chopped off by terrorists. We might die in a fire. We might starve to death. 
God makes no promises to provide for our material needs, at least not individually. We know on a whole, as a society, if we were to love the Lord our God and to act according to his will, a lot more of us would eat well. Many fewer children would go to bed hungry. But on an individual level, loving the Lord, serving him, doesn't provide us with any material blessings or benefits. The benefits that we are promised individually are spiritual, are in heaven. The woman in the first reading and the witness gospel both trust in the Lord. And we know that they receive great benefits, great blessings in heaven. In the second reading, we heard how Christ offers himself unceasingly for us. Brothers and sisters, I believe this is the charge. We are to be poor in spirit, just as these widows are poor in spirit. We are to trust in God, knowing that all we have is from him, knowing that everything that we are, everything we will be, everything we've gotten, everything we'll get, it's all from God. All of these are material blessings we've already received, and they are only glimpses of the heavenly blessings that await us if we are willing to trust God to offer everything to him. Well, brothers and sisters, that's all I have for this week. I think we're running a little shorter than usual, but that's okay. It's a podcast. doesn't need to be 24 minutes exactly every single week. And I know I'm two days late on getting this out. Sorry. I love you. I'm just, you know, sometimes a miserable failure for a podcaster. And I need to go home and walk my dog. So let me leave you with this prayer. May you be poor in spirit. May you trust in the Lord when you have nothing left. And may you be ever willing to offer everything to the Lord. It doesn't mean going off and selling everything you have and joining a monastery, but being willing, knowing that all we have is from God, being willing to give it back in a moment's notice, to use it always for his glory, for love of neighbor. Amen. Thank you for joining me this week. Once again, I'm Jim Germain, and I look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you. God bless.